Good evening, everybody. So let's start just with a couple of more minutes, watching our breath, letting the mind settle down. And then uh, we'll do the abbreviated meditation on the Buddha. And then we'll continue with the teachings. Um, last week we were discussing insight, and in particular the four um, points, the four key points of analysis to uh, see if the person existed inherently or not. And we got as far as the second point, so I'll just refer, review the first and second, and then we'll, we'll continue on with the third. Okay? First, a couple minutes of the breath. space in front. Imagine the Buddha surrounded by all the other Buddhas and yourself surrounded by all the sentient beings. And as we recite the different verses, think about their meanings and generate the feelings or the thoughts contained within them. So, for example, in the first verse when take refuge and generate bodhicitta. Yeah, really feel that connection with the three jewels. And also be very clear about your intention for listening to the teachings and make it an intention of aspiring for full awakening for the benefit of all beings. I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. I love and I create by engaging in generosity. And the other far-reaching practices may I attain Buddhahood in order to benefit all sentient beings. I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the merit I create by engaging in generosity. And the other far-reaching practices may I attain Buddhahood in order to benefit all sentient beings. I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the merit I create by engaging in generosity. And the other far-reaching practices may I attain Buddhahood in order to 
to benefit all sentient beings. May all sentient beings have happiness and its causes. May all sentient beings be free of suffering and its causes. May all sentient beings not be separated from sorrowless bliss. May all sentient beings abide in equanimity, free of bias, attachment, and anger. Reverently I prostrate with my body, speech, and mind, and present clouds of every type of offering, actual and mentally transformed. I confess all my destructive actions accumulated since beginning this time, and rejoice in the virtues of all holy and ordinary beings. Please remain until cyclic existence ends, and turn the wheel of karma for sentient beings. I dedicate all the virtues of myself and others to the Great Awakening. This ground anointed with perfume, flowers
So we're um, going through this text, The Easy Path, and we're at the very end of it now. We will finish either next week or the week after that. And uh, what happens after that is up to you people. Uh, Yeah, if somebody requests, uh, we can continue with another text, or we can take a break, or whatever you like. So, we've been talking here about the teachings on insight. So this is insight into the nature of reality. And the reason this is important is because all of our problems, in fact our whole um, existence in samsara and cyclic existence, is due to the ignorance that wrongly grasps how things exist. And so due to this fundamental misapprehension, thinking things exist in a way that they don't, then, uh, you know, we generate all sorts of afflictions, such as attachment, anger, confusion, and so forth. And due to those afflictions, we create actions, or karma, and then that karma will ripen in terms of the rebirths that we take in cyclic existence. So as as long as there is this self-grasping ignorance, or ignorance grasping at inherent existence, we will continue to cycle in samsara. So while compassion and other meditations are very good and may uh, diminish the affliction somewhat, none of them can uproot the afflictions except this wisdom realizing emptiness. So that's why it's so important. So even though it's hard to understand, it's definitely worthwhile to understand. Okay? Um, if it weren't worthwhile, then we wouldn't put so much energy into it. Okay? And the Buddha would not have explained it at length, and the great masters would not have written vast treatises about the nature of reality if it weren't important. So there's many different kinds of uh, refutations that we can use to um, to prove to ourselves that the way things appear to us is not the way they exist. That while things appear to us as being independent entities, separate from causes and conditions, independent of parts, 
independent of the mind that conceives and labels them, even though things appear to us as this objective things out there. In fact, they don't exist that way, and they exist in dependence on causes and conditions, and then all phenomena exist in dependence on their parts and in independence, not independent, in dependence uh, uh, on the mind that uh, conceives and labels them. Okay, so uh, to refute the, the wrong way, you know, the object of the grasping, our wrong apprehension of how things exist, then we do this for, you know, these different, um, these different refutations. So the one that's particularly covered in this text is called the four-point analysis, or the four key points. Um, Okay, so last week we talked about the first two. So the first one is called identifying the object of negation. Okay, in other words, identifying the way, the, the conceived object of this ignorance that grasps at true existence or inherent existence. How does that inherent existence appear to us? So inherent existence doesn't exist. So we, you know, but we have to prove ourselves, prove that to ourselves. So in trying to identify this object of negation, we can never have a reliable cognizer of it because it's something that doesn't exist. So we only have to get a general idea about, you know, what inherent existence appears like. So they often recommend using a situation where we feel a very strong emotion. Yeah, and the typical example is when we've been accused of doing something we didn't do. But it could also be, you know, when you have very strong grief, or when you're incredibly joyful and happy, uh, you know, filled with attachment. Yeah. But in, in any of those cases, the way the I, this is the capital I, appears to us is, uh, you know, as some kind of objective entity that exists in its own right. Okay. So like somebody criticizes you, you don't just say, oh yeah, it's okay. Yeah. There's no feeling like, oh yeah, it's okay, I don't care. When somebody criticizes us, especially for something we didn't do, there's this feeling of, wait a minute, I didn't do that. I don't deserve to be blamed. How can you talk to me like that? Okay? So there's a very strong appearance of an inherently existent I at that time. Okay, so the idea is to, in our meditation, we, we think about that kind of situation, let that appearance of the eye come up, and then with one corner of the mind, just examine how that eye appears. Yeah? And what you want to feel like is, you know, that appearance of the eye is so strong and so independent you want to have the feeling like, if that doesn't exist, then I don't know what does. Yeah, 
Like this, I really exist. I'm there, and they're insulting me. Yeah. So you want to let that feeling come up and really observe, but you have to observe with just a small part of your mind how that I appears. Yeah. If you, uh, if you are too vigilant and really looking at that eye, how it appears very strongly, then it disappears. Okay? So you have to be very astute and just look at it with one corner of your mind. Yeah? Because that eye appears to be completely independent of the body and mind, and yet somehow mixed in with it. Okay? If that eye appears to be the body or appears to be the mind, then that corner of our mind looking at it is too strong. And it hid. Okay. So we, we want to have that observation. It's very difficult to come by. This eye that's totally independent and yet somehow mixed in. Sounds contradictory. But for something that doesn't exist, of course it's contradictory. <laughs> okay? But inside of us, we feel like that's who I am. Yeah? And if that doesn't exist, then what does? You know, because I am here. Okay? Then the second point in the four points is to ascertain that if the I, the person, the self, in fact existed the way it appears, inherently the way it appears, then, yeah, it should, the I should either be one with the aggregates, the body and mind, or totally separate from the aggregates. Okay? So the aggregates are form, our body, Feelings, happy, um, unhappy, and neutral feelings. Discriminations is the third aggregate that differentiates different things, discerns things. The fourth aggregate is uh, volitional factors. These are various emotions and miscellaneous mental factors. And then the fifth aggregate is primary consciousness. So that's the like the five sense consciousnesses and the mental consciousness. Okay. So either, you know, we have to examine, does the I exist as, if, if the I existed inherently as it appears, then the I should exist either completely in one with the aggregates, no difference whatsoever, because something inherently existent is objective, so it either has to be exactly identical with something else, or totally separate and unrelated. Yeah. Now, normally, many things, you know, our body and mind are not totally one, and they're not totally separate, because, I'm sorry, the I, the self, is not totally one with the body and mind, and not totally separate, because the I is designated independence upon the collection of the body and mind, independence upon the aggregates. Yeah. However, if it existed inherently as it appears, 
then it couldn't be dependent because inherent existence is the same as independent existence. And independent existence and dependent existence are contradictory. Okay? So, then we start examining, you know, so the third point is how does the I exist? Is it, uh, in, you know, does it exist as one with the aggregates in terms of inherent existence? So I'll read the portion here so you have the transmission. It, the English in it is a bit difficult to describe, uh, to, to understand, you know, because the sentences are quite long and elaborate, but I will explain them, okay? So regarding the third key point, ascertaining the lack of inherent unity, okay, that they're inherently one. If you imagine that the I thus apprehended is inherently one with the five aggregates, since living beings have five aggregates, the I too would have to have five distinct continuums. If the I was one, the five aggregates too would have to be one, partless, and so on which poses many problems. Consequently, conclude that the I thus apprehended is not one with the five aggregates. Okay, so here's one part of the refutation. If the I, the person, yeah, were inherently one and identical with these five aggregates, you know, then they'd have to, they would have to be the same in number because if they're identical, they can't be different in number. So if there's one person, then you would only be able to have one aggregate. But there's five aggregates. Or, if there were five aggregates, then there should be five people. But there aren't five people, there's only one person. Okay? So in that way, that's one reason why the person and the aggregates can't be identical because they aren't identical in terms of their numbers. Okay? Also, when you look at it, yeah, if you ask yourself, you know, am I my body? Yeah? Am I identical with one, even one of my aggregates, like the body? Are you your body? Are you your body? Yeah. When we search, you know, if we were our body, yeah, then we would only be our body. Okay. So then every time you use the word I, you could it would be synonymous with body. Okay. So then if you say I'm walking, well the body is walking. That makes sense. But you say, I'm thinking, then you would have to say, the body is thinking. Is the body thinking? No. Okay. If we were one and the same, identical with our body, then we should be able to find the person somewhere inside the body. Can you find yourself in your body? Hmm? Yeah? Sometimes, you know, you're sitting there, sometimes it feels like I'm in here, doesn't it? When you're thinking, oh, I'm up here. 
or when you're having a strong emotion. Oh, I'm in here. But if you opened your skull up, would you find yourself? No. If you opened your chest up, would you find yourself? No. You would just find blood and guts and brains and things like that, which are not the, the person. Okay? So we can't be identical with the aggregates. Then the, the second one says, Moreover, if the I thus apprehended is established as one with the aggregates, as the five aggregates arise and disintegrate, so would the I, established by the perception aware of it, standing on its own, have to arise and disintegrate. What that means, simply, is if the I and the aggregates were identical, then just as the body and mind arise and disintegrate, yeah, I mean, the body's born, it ages, it dies, yeah, the consciousness arises, each moment of consciousness arises and ceases. So if the I were inherently one with the body or mind, then it would also arise and cease exactly like that. Now conventionally, the self does arise and cease. Okay. However, if that were the case, would the I that arises and disintegrates be one with or distinct from its previous moment of existence and its subsequent moment? So if the I yeah, arose and disintegrated, then what is the relationship between the past moment of the self, the present moment of the self, and the future moment of the self. Okay? And within inherent existence, if things were inherently existent, then the past moment, yesterday's, whoever you were yesterday, whoever you are today, and whoever you'll be tomorrow, would have to be exactly one and the same. Are you the same person yesterday, today, and tomorrow? No, you've changed. Okay, so it says, if that were the case, uh, okay, if you were considered it to be one with them, then the eye of the previous life, of the present life, and of the subsequent life, all three would be one and partless. Okay, so if the past, present, and future you. We did it in terms of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We aren't the same person in three days. Even if we do this over lifetimes, previous lifetime person, this lifetime person, next lifetime person, yeah, if the I were inherently existent, those three persons would have to be exactly one and the same person. Are you your past life's person? Are you your future life's person? Maybe your past life was, you know, a grasshopper and your future life is going to be a celestial being. You know, you're, you're not one and the same, are you? Okay, but if the I inherently existed, then, yeah, it would have to be exactly the same person. If we're exactly the same person, 
in our past, present, and future lives, then there's no way for karma to be created in one life and ripen in another life because the person who created it and would be the exact same person who experienced it and they would all be occurring simultaneously. Okay, because for things to be identical they have to exist at the same time. Okay. But if they, these three people were distinct, the past life you, present life you, future life you, if they are distinct, and although they are distinct, here in the context of inherently exist, inherent existence, they would have to be inherently distinct and utterly unconnected. So three separate individuals. Okay, so the I of the previous, of the present, and of the future life would be utterly unconnected. This poses many problems. One would experience the results of karmas that one had not created. Karma would go wasted, and so forth. Hence, the previous and subsequent moments of such an I are not inherently distinct. Therefore, conclude that the I is apprehended by that perception is not one with the aggregates. Okay? So, if past I, present I, and future I are inherently distinct and totally different, okay, then once one moment of the person ceased, the next moment would be a completely, totally different person. Because they're inherently distinct. If in that case, there would be no continuity. Yeah. So what you did in one life, or even in this earlier in this life, would have no effect on the person that you were later because they would be two separate individuals. Because once this person ceased, they're totally non-existent, and the person that arises in the next moment is a totally new person. So they're unconnected. So that way, what happened in the past could have no influence on the present and the future. Okay, so there's no way for karma could be to be created in one life and ripen in another life. Or even in one life, like this life, there's no way for you to do something early in this life and have it bring a result later in this life. Because you would be two totally different people. If we were two totally different people, then another problem is, you know, just as the previous me and the present me are totally different people, then you, you and me are totally different people. So if a totally different person could create the cause and I experience the effect, then you could create the cause and I would experience the effect. It was just total nonsense. Yeah. And if you did it within the, in the sense of this lifetime, that means you could uh, stub your toe and I would feel the pain because I could feel the result of something that I didn't do, of a person that was inherently distinct and unrelated. Okay, so that doesn't work either. 
Okay. So these are various refutations if the person and the aggregates are, are identical. Then another one is that the agent and the object would be the same. So it says, if in addition, if the I thus apprehended were one with the aggregates, since they would be inherently one, they would have to be completely and utterly one. If that were the case, it would conflict with the I or self being the appropriator of the five aggregates, with the five aggregates being what is appropriated by the I or self, and so forth. Therefore, conclude that the I thus apprehended is not one with the five aggregates. Okay? So, we often talk about when somebody's reborn that the person appropriates or takes another set of five aggregates and that those five aggregates are appropriated or taken by the person. Okay? So, the, it, when we talk like that in conventional terms, the person is the agent doing the taking of the aggregates and the aggregates are what is taken. Okay? But if the I and the aggregates were inherently one and identical, you couldn't say that the self appropriated a new set of aggregates because the, the one who's appropriating and what's appropriated would be completely identical. Okay? So, um, what would be a good example? Uh, well, maybe let's just leave it like that. Okay? Then, so here the whole conclusion is that the person and the aggregates cannot, are not inherently one and identical. Yeah. And for me, you know, what really makes sense about that is if they were one and identical, then whenever I said I, I could substitute the name of one of the aggregates. Yeah. So, you know, if I'm my body, then the body is thinking. Yeah. The body is dreaming. body's not dreaming. The body is experiencing anger. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Or, if you say, I'm my mind, then the mind would be walking. The mind would have an itch. That doesn't make any sense either. So, I don't know about for you, but for me, you know, that, that really starkly points out that they can't be identical. And also, if you search through your body, you can't find yourself. And if you search through your mind, you also can't find a person in there. Okay. Then, regarding the fourth key point, ascertaining the lack of inherent plurality or inherent difference. Although the I thus ascertained is not established as one with the aggregates, if you think perhaps it is established as distinct from the aggregates, just as once you have eliminated each of the four aggregates, the aggregate of form, etc., there remains the aggregate of consciousness that can be recognized distinctly. Similar to that, once you have eliminated each of the five aggregates, 
that of form and so forth. You should be able to identify distinctly an I thus apprehended, but that is not possible. Consequently, conclude that the I thus apprehended is not established as distinct from the five aggregates. Okay, so what this means is, yeah, if the I and the aggregates were totally distinct, then just if, for example, if we had the five aggregates, if, or, yeah, and you took away the form, the feeling, the discriminations, and the volitional factors, you would still have the consciousness primary consciousness remaining, okay? But if the I and the aggregates were totally distinct, then when you took away each aggregate, all five aggregates, you should still have the person. Yeah, but if you take away the five aggregates, there's no way to identify the person, is there? Yeah, or to put it another way, if they're inherently distinct, the five aggregates could be here, my body and mind could be here, but children could be in the back of the room. Okay. Now, if I said my body and mind were here, but I'm in the back of the room, you would send me to the loony house, wouldn't you? Because the body, you know, the, the self, the person, isn't totally distinct from the body and mind. It's, it relies on the body and mind. It's designated in dependence on the body and mind. It can't exist as some separate entity. Now you might say, but what about a soul? <laughs> yeah, a soul, it's not my body, it's not my mind. I am my soul something distinct from the body and mind. Okay, then tell me what that soul is. Tell me what that soul does that is not something that the body and mind does. Because if the soul were totally, if, the, if there were a soul that were the person, that existed completely separate from the body and mind, then it would have to do things that neither the body nor the mind could do, because it's totally separate. So what is that? Yeah. It's hard to come up with something that you could say a, a soul does that wouldn't refer to either the body or mind. Because if you said, well, the soul goes from one lifetime to the next, well, hey, the continuity of the consciousness goes from one lifetime to the next. And that's not the soul. Yeah. Or if you say, well, the soul is who I really am, well, tell me the qualities of who you really are. Yeah. Any quality you name, is going to be a quality of either the body or the mind. Yeah. And anyway, what quality could you name that you really are? Yeah? Okay, so 
So then the next uh, says, by analyzing the four key points, once you have ascertained that the eye is apprehended by the innate grasping at eye does not exist, meditate on that ascertainment continually and one-pointedly, free of laxity and excitement. Okay? So once we have done this and reached the conclusion that the eye is not inherently one with the aggregates, it's not inherently separate from the aggregates, those are the only two possible ways the eye could exist if it were inherently existent. So therefore, if it doesn't exist in either of those ways, there is the eye does not exist inherently. So you reach that conclusion, there's no inherently existent eye. Yeah. And you focus on the lack of that inherently existent eye that emptiness of the person with one-pointed concentration that is free of laxity and excitement. So you just put your mind on that and let your mind stay on that without doing any more analysis. Okay. However, if the ascertainment weakens slightly, so if your ascertainment that there's there's no inherently existent person weakens, then beginners should revert to an analysis of the four key points and induce the ascertainment of the lack of inherent existence. So if you're a beginner and you lose that sense that there's no inherently existent I, do the four-point analysis again. Those with higher faculties will analyze whether the eye as it appears to the innate eye grasping uh, exists or not. On that basis, they can elicit the ascertainment of non-inherent existence in a way similar to the analysis of the four key points. So this is saying that if, if somebody with higher faculties who already understands emptiness somewhat, if their ascertainment of emptiness <coughs> declines, then they will analyze whether the eye, as it appears to the innate eye grasping, exists or not. So the eye, as it appears, is the inherently existent eye. So you check, does the eye exist as it appears? And then again, you come to the realization, no, it is empty of inherent existence. Okay? So at that point, so you've come back and renewed your, the vivid, vivid ascertainment of emptiness. At that point, the way to meditate on space-like concentration is to meditate one-pointedly on the combination of the two. Okay, so the two. From the angle of confirmation, the firm ascertainment of non-inherent existence. And from the angle of appearances, the ascertainment of emptiness that is the simple absence of the object of negation, inherent existence. Okay? So you meditate, what you're meditating on, okay, is the combination of two things. One is, yeah, what you're confirming is that you've ascertained non-inherent existence. You're confirming things are empty. From the angle of appearance, the ascertainment of emptiness, 
that is the simple absence of the object of negation. So what you're ascertaining is emptiness. Okay, so you're confirming that things do not inherently exist and you're ascertaining emptiness. Okay, so you can see that after that analysis, the analysis shows that things do not inherently exist. But you have to combine not inherently existent with meaning they are empty. That's the point here. Okay. So that's the subsequent, uh, that's the space-like meditation on emptiness. Then when you arise from that, okay, what they call subsequent attainment time, so this is the time that you're walking around, you know, you're chasing the turkeys, you're meditating on bodhicitta, you're cooking lunch, okay? So, subsequent to space-like concentration, meditate on the illusion-like display of the eye and so forth, that is, of all phenomena. In addition, by the strong ascertainment of non-inherent existence in meditative absorption, subsequently train in inducing the appearance of a false and illusion-like display according to which all that manifests lacks inherent existence, although it appears. Okay, so when you're in space-like concentration on emptiness, the mind is single-pointedly on emptiness. Nothing else is appearing. There's not even the appearance of subject and object. There's no sense of, I'm meditating on emptiness. Yeah? So this is the context of direct perception. Of course, we're not going to have direct perception at the beginning. We have to first get a correct inference. But at the time of direct perception, there's no sense of, I'm meditating on emptiness. So there's no sense of, I got it now! I have a realization of emptiness. So if you're thinking that, you haven't gotten it. <laughs> okay? Because to that non-conceptual meditation on emptiness, the only thing that appears is emptiness. There's no thought like, I'm realizing emptiness. There's no appearance of a me that's, that's realizing emptiness. There's no appearance of a truly existent emptiness. Because yeah, that doesn't exist at all. But when you arise from your meditation, okay, then you meditate on the illusion-like display of the eye and so forth. So, you know, when, when you arise from meditation, you're still under the influence of that meditation. Yeah, and so you've just ascertained that things do not inherently exist. But yet, they're appearing inherently existent to your senses. So there's some discordance there. So then you see that actually that appearance is false. That appearance is like an illusion. So just as, uh, you know, in the ride in Disneyland, what was it, the haunted house, 
I haven't been in the haunted house for years. But I remember it very well because you go through the haunted house and you're coming out and you look out there and you see a reflection of yourself and there's a ghost sitting next to you. Okay? So is that a real ghost? Yeah. There appears to be a ghost sitting next to me. Is that appearance, does that ghost exist the way it appears? It appears to be a real ghost. Is there a real ghost? No. Okay. If you're two years old, maybe you think yes. Yeah. But hopefully most of us recognize no. But still that ghost appears. So we're able to look at the ghost and say, that appearance is false. So in the same way, when you've ascertained the lack of inherent existence, emptiness in your meditation, when you come out, when things still appear distant and cut off, objective out there, you realize, oh, that's like the appearance of the ghost. It appears, but that's not how things actually exist. They actually ex lack any kind of inherent existence. So you use that false appearance to remind you that things are empty. Yeah. And you use your remembrance of emptiness to remind yourself that things falsely appear. So th this is a very, very important point because if you do the meditation on emptiness and then when you come out of it, you think nothing exists, then you've gone to the extreme of nihilism. So things exist, but they exist falsely. They exist like illusions. Okay? So things exist like the ghost. They appear, but you can't find them anywhere. And this feels profoundly unsettling to us, doesn't it? Because we're sure if we see something, we can find it. But when you've just come out of that, that realization of emptiness, yeah, you see all these things, but you know if you analyze to see if they are one with their parts or separate with their parts, you see that you couldn't find them. And yet there's this appearance. And all that exists is the appearance. So you can't say nothing exists because the appearance of the phenomena exists. And that's all conventionally existent phenomena are, is an appearance. Yeah. We usually hear that, you know, although things are empty, they still exist conventionally. So we go, oh yeah, that's very good. They're empty, and then they still exist the same way inherently, like I'm, I'm grasping them now. So we go completely back to our extreme of absolutism. 
okay? But this isn't, you can't go back to the extreme of absolutism because there's no inherently existent person. There's only the appearance of an inherently existent person. So you can't say there's nothing. Because things only exist as appearances. But they aren't what they appear to be. They're false appearances. This is very unsettling when you really think about it. But that's the point of the realization of emptiness. Is, you know, it like, whoa, I thought that I was real, and whoa, you know, I don't exist the way I thought I existed. Yeah. If you come out of the, you know, the meditation on emptiness feeling exactly the way you felt when you went into it, then, you know, nothing happened. Okay. Yeah. When you realize emptiness, you, you don't analyze anymore, isn't it? Because you said before, then you analyze. If, if you lose the ascertainment while you're in, in meditation, then you do more analysis to get the ascertainment back. But then, once it comes back, you meditate single-pointedly without analysis. Okay. Then, the next point is, the way to meditate once the selflessness of phenomena is established. So we just talk, finish the selflessness of persons, analyzing whether the self, the I, exists or inherently or not. Now we're going to check if phenomena exist inherently. By phenomena, generally phenomena includes everything, you know. Here it means everything but the person. And specifically here in this meditation, phenomena means the aggregates, because the aggregates are the basis of designation of the person. So we just ag analyzed to see that the person didn't exist inherently. Now we're going to analyze if the basis of designation of the person, the aggregates, exist inherently or not. Okay? So, there's a... It, under here, there's different points. So one is the way to meditate once composite phenomena's lack of true nature is established. The way to meditate once non-composite phenomena's lack of true nature is established. And the first, analyzing, you know, how when it says composite phenomena, it means conditioned impermanent phenomena. So under those, you have consciousness and you have. Um, abstract composites or non-associated compositional factors. Okay, so the first one we're going to look at is the way to meditate once composite phenomena's lack of true nature is established. Here, specifically talking about the aggregates. Okay, so I should say the first includes the aggregates, consciousness, and abstract composites. For, um, I'm sorry, the first includes the body, the consciousness, and the abstract composites, because those are the three divisions of impermanent phenomena. Okay, so first we're going to look at the body and see if the body exists inherently. Okay, so it says, for the first, take the example of a body. On the basis of a body, which is a simple collection of five limbs made of tangible flesh and bones, Okay, so when they talk of the body, 
was, is made of five limbs. It's not two arms, two legs, and a tail. The head is, con is, is considered a limb. Okay, so two arms, two legs, and a head. Those are the five limbs. Okay. So the body is a simple collection. On the basis of the body, which is a simple collection of the five limbs made of tangible flesh and bones, what appears to us unmistakably is a whole body that stands on its own and does not exist as just a designation by conception. So on the basis of a body that has five parts plus a trunk, we see one body. In fact, what's there is a collection of different parts. But on the basis of that, we impute one body. So just as we imputed the eye on the basis of five aggregates, we impute body on the basis of a trunk with the head, two arms, and two legs, and, you know, everything else, all the different parts of the body. Okay? So, that, so this is how the object of negation appears. There's a real body here. Yeah, don't you feel like there's a real body here? There's a body here. Okay. If such a body existed, would it be one with or distinct from the body that is a simple collection of five limbs made of tangible flesh and bone? So if the body existed as one solid objective thing, as it appears, okay, does it exist as one with its parts or separate from its parts? The parts being the trunk and the five limbs, okay? But you could also further divide the parts, you know, your kidneys and everything else, okay? So if the body is one with it, as the body that is a simple collection of five limbs made of tangible flesh and bones was produced by its parent sperm and egg, the drop of the combined sperm and egg that was the basis onto which the consciousness entered would be the coarse body that is a simple collection of the five limbs made of tangible flesh and bones. I'll explain that in a minute. Moreover, just as it has five limbs, so too would the body that is a collection of five parts be multiplied by five, one for each limb. If they were distinct, once you had eliminated each limb, the head and so forth, you should be able to point to out uh, a body, but you cannot. Once you have generated the ascertainment that thinks in no way does such a body exist, meditate on that. Okay, so here basically what we're doing is going through the same analysis that we went through, except we're not analyzing the relationship between the person and the aggregates, we're analyzing the relationship between the body and its parts. So are the body and the parts of the body, are they in inherently one. If they were inherently existent, they would have to be either inherently one or inherently separate. Okay? So, if they were inherently one, then just as there's one body, there should be one part. 
okay? Or just as there are many parts to the body, there should be many bodies. Or it would mean that the body, you would be able to identify the body as one of the parts. Okay? So, if you look at your hand, you know, is your hand your body? Well, one way it's not our body. The hand and the body are different. Another way, it sure looks like the body, doesn't it? Huh? A part. A part of the body. But when, when I'm talking, I say, here's my body. Here's my body. Don't I? Here's my body. As if this were my body. Is this my body? Well, if it's not my body, what is my body? You see what I mean? Is this my body? If you say, no, it's not your body, then tell me where my body is, if this isn't my body. They would have to be inherently distinct. If you say, this is my body, then what happens if I'm in an accident and I lose my hand? Then do I have two bodies? One for the hand and one for the rest? At which point, if you started taking away different points, different parts of the body, at what point does it stop being a body? It's like if you have a flower and you start pulling off the petals, at what point does it stop being a flower? As soon as you don't designate it that way anymore. Huh? As soon as you don't designate it that way anymore. <laughs> yeah. But if they, you know, if the flower exists in there, then you should be able to identify something that is the body, is the flower, even when you've removed all these petals and all the different parts. And you should be able to have a body right there even though the parts of the body have been removed. Or you should have each part being a body. Okay? So neither of those make sense. Yeah? Just the same kind of analysis. So when you do that, then you, you come to the conclusion, whoa, you know, I thought the body was one thing. Yeah, here's my body. It feels like one thing, doesn't it? Ooh, no, it's not. There's no inherently existent body. Actually, there's just a bunch of parts put together that we've labeled body. When you sit here, do you feel that like this is a bunch of parts put together that has been merely labeled body? We don't feel that way. We feel it's body, and moreover, we feel it's my body, and it's me. So do you see all the layers 
of misconception there are here? Okay, now to move on to the second part, the consciousness, okay? So, take, is this going to be the same kind of analysis? Take today's consciousness as an example. If there is today's consciousness that does not exist as a simple designation by conception on the basis of the consciousness of this morning and the consciousness of the afternoon, is it one with or distinct from the consciousness of this morning and this and the consciousness of the afternoon? Okay, so if we talk about today's consciousness, okay, we usually designate today's consciousness on the basis of the consciousness in the morning and the consciousness in the afternoon and the consciousness in the evening. Okay, but if there is, so we designate it as consciousness, today's consciousness. So does today's, con- what, what is the relationship between today's consciousness and morning consciousness, afternoon consciousness, evening consciousness? What's the relationship? Is today's consciousness inherently the same? Because if it, if it inherently existed, it have to be inherently one with the consciousness of the morning, the one of the afternoon, the one of the... or it would have to be separate. Okay, so it's the same kind of analysis. If it is one with them, on the basis of this morning's consciousness, you would find this afternoon's consciousness. So, if today's consciousness is one with the conscious in the morning, conscious in the afternoon, conscious in the evening, if they're all one, all three parts are one, then when you looked at the morning consciousness, you should also find the afternoon's consciousness. Because the, the morning consciousness is the person, the afternoon consciousness is the person, so their afternoon and morning consciousness must be both the same consciousness because they're both the consciousness of today. Okay, but they're not the same, are they? They're different consciousnesses. If they are distinct, then after eliminating this morning's consciousness and this afternoon's consciousness and of course this evening's consciousness, you should be able to point out today's consciousness, but you can. Okay, it's just the same thing. If you had, you know, morning consciousness, afternoon consciousness, evening consciousness, you took them all away, you would still have today's consciousness. You don't. Okay? So once you have generated the ascertainment that thinks there is no such consciousness, meditate on that as before. Okay? Then, then we move on to the third kind of impermanent phenomena, abstract composites. So here time is, is the example. Yeah. So take a period of time, such as a year, as an example. If there were a year that existed from its own side, and not as a simple designation by conception on a year's basis of designation, 12 months, would it exist as one with the 12 months or as distinct from them? So again, on the basis of 12 months, that's the basis of designation, we designate year. 
But if the year existed not as a simple designation on the basis of the 12 months, but as some independent entity, then what is its relationship with the 12 months? Would it be inherently one with them or inherently separate? Okay? If they were inherently one, then just as there are 12 months, so there would have to be 12 years. If they were distinct, once you had eliminated each of the 12 months, you should be able to point to a year, but you cannot. Once you've generated the ascertainment and think that thinks there is no such year, meditate on it as before. Okay, so here we've gone through all three categories of impermanent phenomena. So, there's only a little bit re remaining for the text. We'll save that for next week. Yeah. Um, and see if there's any questions right now. Yeah. There was a question from last week. Okay. Um, so it's when thinking about how we have to be able to identify the inherently existing I, I find it helpful to look first at why we don't have to find an independent I. Why we don't have to? Find an independent I. Yes. Hmm. Well, the person continues, the dependent I changes moment by moment, so it isn't the same in the next moment. Inherently existent I, though, would not be different in the next moment and therefore should be findable. Is this a correct way of beginning to look at this? Okay, well, it's true that the inherently existent I would not be different in the next moment because something that inherently exists doesn't change because it's not dependent on any other phenomenon. Okay, however, the first point when we're identifying the object of negation, we have to identify from our own experience the feeling of an independent eye. So it's not the, the thought, it's not an intellectual thought of an independent eye. You have to have a gut feeling of this is me. Like I said before, if this is not me, I don't know what in the world is me. Yeah? If I don't exist the way I appear, then what could possibly exist? Mm -hmm. um, I've been wondering this for a while, but if if um, the meditator is in a um, a state where they're non-dual with their meditation on emptiness, um, how, what rouses them from their meditation? How do they? Uh, so okay. They have to try to yeah, okay. so, so if you're in non-meditative you know, meditative equipoise, non-dual with emptiness, and there's no sense of a me meditating on emptiness, then what makes you come out of that meditation? Okay, so here you're kind of, uh, if, if it's somebody who doesn't have real strong concentration, eventually their concentration disintegrates and they come out. If it's somebody with very strong concentration, usually before they enter into that meditative equipoise, they'll kind of in their mind set a period of time that they're going to meditate for. And then they come out. And another question is, for someone who hasn't had a uh, inferential or direct experience of emptiness, is it useful to still cultivate that sense of everything being illusion-like? Uh, okay, so even if you haven't had an inferential 
or uh, a direct perception of him, emptiness, is it still helpful to cultivate the, the thought that things exist like illusions? Yeah, it's still, it's still helpful to do that. But you have to be aware and not project the wrong kind of illusion-like appearance on phenomena. And Tsongkhapa goes into this in great length in his middle treatise, uh, middle-length treatise on the long run, you know, and he, he says it's illusion-like appearances doesn't mean like everything's, you know, popping into existence and going out of existence. And it doesn't mean that there's colors flashing all over the place. And it doesn't mean that you could uh, peel back reality and find nothingness, or pe peel back the appearance and find, like, wallpaper, and behind that there's nothing, you know. So, so we have to understand what illusion-like appearance means. Yeah. But if we focus on things don't exist as they appear, then you're still trying to identify, well, how exactly do they appear? So that's going back, actually, to the, the first of the four points. Yeah, which is helpful. Yeah? And this, actually, the question that I had also kind of tails on that, and that was, when we think of the two extremes of nihilism or absolutism, I, I can speak for myself, I don't live in the world of nihilism so much. I, I live in the world of absolutism. Absolutism, right. And so in, in thinking how strong that is and how on a daily basis I just build that and, and strengthen it and reify it, yeah. it would seem as though, you know, to take a strong approach, and whether that's that, that quasi mind-only approach or those those ways in which we kind of break down reality and we kind of have a tendency to question all the time to, to try and move a little bit, shift a little bit away from everything being so concrete. Uh -huh. Does that make sense at all? Because there is yeah. a part of me that resonates with that approach because it is questioning and it is challenging. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, it's true, mostly we, we are in the extreme of absolutism, yeah. You only get, I mean, you can, you get to an extreme of nihilism either through your conceptual thinking, which misunderstands the teaching on emptiness, or through getting close to realizing emptiness and then confusing emptiness with, with uh, you know, non-existence, non right. Okay, um, but it is helpful to shake up that feeling of being a solid person. What I find helpful, instead of uh, making up an, our idea of illusion-like appearance, I think it's very helpful just to ask myself in a very gross way, yeah, I have all this, these identities. I'm an American, I'm a woman, I'm a nun. I'm Caucasian, I'm Jew from Jewish background, I'm straight, I'm, you know, whatever, you know, all these different things are, you know, I'm the abbess, you know, whatever, yeah. And then to, to look and say, why do I say I'm those things? Am I any of those things? What part of me is those things? You know, I'm, I'm the daughter of Adele and Bernie Green. What part of this is the daughter of Adele and Bernie Green? Yeah? 
And so to, I find it helpful to take some of those gross identities, which we get really tripped up on, you know, and we cling to those gross identities very strongly, even though they're acquired identities. They're not even the innate ones. I mean, look what's going on in the world. You know, people it, it, with ISIS, that identity of being Muslim and following this certain book and therefore things have to be like that, that's all learned. It's not even innate grasping. In the Crusades, what the Christians did, that's all learned. Okay, but look how strong it is. Of course, if the innate grasping were there, that other stuff wouldn't come up. Yeah. But I find that it's very helpful, you know, to look at all the things that I say about myself. Even things, if, if I get into that thing of putting myself down, I'm unlovable or I'm worthless. Yeah. And to say, who? Who's unlovable? Who's worthless? Find that person. On what basis do I say that? What is the basis of designation? Yeah? Well, it's true. Or even like saying, I'm American. On what, what is the basis of designation for saying I'm American? Is there anything? Is, is my mind American? Forget it. Is my body American? You could cut open my body. There's nothing American about my body. It's the same blood and guts as everybody has. So on what basis do I say I'm American? Because there's a piece of paper. That's why, because there's a piece of paper. That's it. You know, am I going to go die for a piece of paper? No. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to die for a piece of paper. Some people, you know, but if you think, oh, like, I'm American, and Ameri and being American is more than just that piece of paper, you know, and you have this whole identity of what an American is, then, yeah, you'll go die for it. But that's based on grasping, isn't it? Grasping true existence. So, you know, take, you know, I'm the father of, of Sage and Cora. Yeah? Who? What, what there is the father of Sage and Cora? Yeah? Maybe one piece of your beard? <laughs> one tooth? Yeah, your kidney, your intestines, yeah, what? Okay, uh-huh. If I does not exist, it does not mean there is no meaning to have this I, right? To meditate on this is not to be attached to this body, right? I think they're asking what's the purpose of this meditation. Okay, what is the purpose of this meditation? Okay. The purpose of this meditation is that when we don't understand that the I exists as merely imputed on the collection of the aggregates, when we don't understand that, 
then we think there's an inherently existent I that is objective, that exists from its own side, that has its own essence. When we believe that that's who we are, then we build up all these stories on the basis of this assumption that there's a real person there. So one story we build up is, I want happiness, and my happiness is the most important. And so therefore, I get attached to everything that gives me happiness, which means that I'm going to be greedy. Because if something gives me happiness, and I want it, but it belongs to you, I'm going to find some way to get it. So I'll steal it, I'll hint, I'll manipulate, I'll do something to get what is not mine. And then once I get it, I'm going to protect it, and I become very miserly, and I'm not going to share it with anybody else. So you could be in pain, but I'm not going to give you what I have, because there's a truly existent me here. Okay? And if you interfere and try and take away what I have, then I'm going to beat you up, either verbally or mentally. I'm going to call you a bunch of names and ruin your reputation, or I'm going to go, PEM! Okay? And in doing all these things, whether the actions are out of attachment or the actions are out of anger or jealousy or whatever, then I'm going to create a lot of negative karma. At the time I die, yeah, I'm going to be craving for my present aggregates, but I'm going to have to leave them. So I'm going to cling to having a new set of aggregates. That's going to make the karma I created ripen, and then PUM, my consciousness, is going to appropriate another set of aggregates, and there I am in a new birth and cyclic existence. Okay, so if you want to stop this cycle of existence and constant rebirth, then it's imperative to realize emptiness, because empty the wisdom that realizes emptiness apprehends the I as existing in the opposite way from the way ignorance apprehends it. So that realization of wisdom is able to cut that wrong grasping. And when you cut the wrong grasping, then you don't have attachment, you don't have anger, jealousy, fear, anxiety, resentment, and all those kinds of things again. So that's the purpose of doing it, to liberate us. Yeah? You know, I still find it hard to wrap my, my head around the idea of um, continuity, whether it's in this life or future life, you know, when there's nobody that exists inherently, you know, whether it's karma, you know, that's carried over or, uh, or skill or development, you know, the idea that uh, in Buddhism, that you know, there's uh, core feature of Buddhism is this idea that that we develop. You know, we we have the long-term view. We develop. There has to be, uh, you know, these cognitive shifts that occur in an understanding as as we progress over time 
whether it's in this lifetime or future lifetime. So, so here we are saying that we don't exist the way that we think we are, but we're thinking long-term, you know, about this continuity because it's a developmental process in terms of where we're heading. Mm -hmm. So a bit like, you know, Mozart being able to compose music yeah. when he was five. So, so you're kind of asking, you know, if we aren't right. the collection of the aggregates, then who in the world is going to attain awakening? How who? do we explain the continuity? How do we explain the continuity? Okay, let's use just an example of this life. That might be easier, okay? So in this life, there was baby Marga, yeah? There was toddler Marga, there was child Marga, teenage Marga, young adult Marga, adult Marga, middle-aged Marga, and there's going to be old age marga, okay? Are any of, is, is toddler marga the same as adult marga? Yeah, is old age marga the same as baby marga? Is there a continuity between baby marga and old age marga? Yes. Can you point out something that is exactly the same in baby Marga and in old age Marga, something that has not changed? No. But that Marga is also different from Ryder, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah. Marga, Marga and Ryder are different. They have different continuities. But there is a relationship between baby Marga and senior citizen Marga. You can't deny that. Baby Marga and Ryder, are, there's no continuity. There's no relationship. There's no relationship. So there is a relationship between Baby Marga and Senior Citizen Marga. Even though you can't find anything that was in Baby Marga that has remained exactly the same in, in Old Age Marga. There's nothing because your body is totally different. Consciousness, totally different. And yet, there's a connection. I think it's, yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me finish. Sorry. Yeah. So, yet, there is a connection. If baby Marga and old age Marga had something that had not changed, that was shared equally in both of them, then baby Marga old age Marga would be exactly the same person. Yeah. Which means that you would be old age Marga when you were a baby. If there's something permanent that hasn't changed... What about the DNA? Yeah, but the, what's the DNA? It's just a collection of bile atoms and molecules. Those are changing all the time, aren't they? You don't have the same atoms that make up your DNA when you're an infant. Yeah. If they're duplicating. Everything's changed. But, 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 yes? <laughs> I get that it's not permanent. I think the part that, that I struggle with is the storing. The storing of... You know, somehow the. Okay, so, the yeah. So it, it would feel kind of good, wouldn't it? If there were maybe like some storehouse consciousness. 
you know, or even some soul that were in maybe Marga, and you just put all the karma there. There was a basket. You put all the karma in the basket, and then the basket kind of went with you. Thinking more about the latencies, though. You know what I mean? Rather than the concrete, where there's that, these propensities that somehow will yeah. develop. So what's a, we want to make the propensity concrete too, don't we? It's it's there. It is. It doesn't change, and I can find it and draw a line around it. Okay. So our tendency is we want concreteness. Yeah. This thing of I can't find anything when I analyze is like, you know. But it's good when we start to have that. Mm-hmm. Question that's sort of related to that, and that is that the thing that I see that is permanent is the name. Is the and name. Is the name. The, is the name permanent and unchanging? Well, what right. is a name? Isn't a name a sound? Right. So is a sound unchanging? Yeah. What? What I? Yeah. So the, well, the rest of the question was when I think about the designated object being the name, mm-hmm. and the basis of imputation is the body or the person. All I, I keep coming back to the problem is language. Oh, the problem isn't language. Yeah, the problem is how we think. Yeah, it's not a a thing of terminology, whether I call this body or call up this I. You know, that's not the issue. If I call it body, and I think, you know, oh, it's something totally separate from me. Yeah, or if I call it, me, you know, then it's related to me. Okay, it's it's how we how we're thinking of it, not just the language. Okay, this will be the last question. Yeah. To me, it's looking like baby Margot and middle aged Margot are two distinct ideas existing presently without. So Margot's an idea. Yeah. <laughs> so an idea is sitting on that chair. Well, I don't, yeah, yeah. Oh. I don't mean that she's not real, I mean that this sort of like concept of middle-aged Margot as something concrete is an idea, without continuity to baby Margot, which is also present and not actually in the past. But wait a minute, are people just ideas? So, so that if I get hurt, an idea got hurt? No. What I'm saying is, I'm wondering about the continuity between baby Margot and present Margot. Yeah. I mean, baby Margot is also in the present, like all memory seems to me to be. Okay. So is your memory who you are? Um, I think that my false identity is in the form of memory. Your? My false identity, the disgracing eyes. Yeah. You know, we, we grasp at our story, don't we? You know, I was born here to these parents, I grew up with this conditioning, I didn't have the perfect childhood, we forget nobody did. But, you know, my father did this to me, my mother did this to me, poor me, I wasn't treated properly, and I had this and this and this. Our whole story, are you your story? 
No, I don't think I am. Yeah. What I'm saying is I don't think there is continuity between Well, it doesn't seem at the moment to me like... There's so there's no continuity? Well, I'm not saying that. I'm wondering about that then. Because it seems like it's all present and not actually continuous or moving. So, 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 ba yeah, maybe you exist right now? Um, in my head. Or not in, in my your head. head. So, if we open your head? Not in my skull, in my mind. In your mind? I don't know. So, what, wait a minute, what is baby you that exists in your mind? What does that mean? Well, it's sort of empty, right? I'm saying, I think every, I'm, I'm wondering about the continuity word, because I just don't see Yeah, anything. continuity means that there's a cause and reflect, a cause and effect relationship between one moment of something that is designated in a continuum and the next moment of that thing. Yeah, but two moments are not exactly the same. Yeah, and they're not separate. They exist as a relationship of cause and effect. But when the effect exists, the cause has ceased. So when you have a continuity composed of different moments, all those moments cannot exist at the same time. Because if they did, then cause and effect would exist simultaneously. Which is impossible. Because if cause and effect exist simultaneously, how could the cause produce the effect? Right. But we can only we can't witness two moments at once. So how do we even measure? I think we to that thing of when we were looking at time. Mm -hmm. How we thought that the past was this inherently was this object that it, and the future was too. And I think he's uh -huh. seeing that that those are just ideas, and those are ideas, and there's just this present here. You know what? Yeah. yeah it seems so. like that's what he's kind of... Okay, but when you look at the present, what is the present moment? I don't know how to say that. Yeah. It's really hard to identify what the present moment is, because as soon as we say that's it, it's already become the past moment. So yeah, what I'm saying is we can't, we can't really, we can only experience one moment at a time. So it seems to me impossible to compare two different moments and see how they've changed. I'm not sure I follow. The, each, each moment, it's not like each moment is a separate moment that still exists even after it's gone out of existence. Yeah, the baby you does not exist right now. Right. Yeah, I don't care in your mind or in your body. The baby you does not exist right now. However, it exists in general because it was the cause of the adult you. Okay? So existing now and existing in general are different. The baby you exists, but it doesn't exist now. We can't say the baby you doesn't exist because you were a baby, and that baby you was the cause of adult you. I don't want to have any proof that I was a baby. You, you what? <laughs> you, to you, be honest, I don't see that as something that I can really tangibly prove to myself. You see baby pictures, don't you? Now. 
Yeah. So you can assume that you were a baby at one time. You didn't come into existence at age 20, did you? I don't like to assume. Yeah, so you, you think it's possible that your childhood never existed and all of a sudden on your 20th birthday you came into existence? I'm open to the possibility. I don't know. If I can't disprove it, then perhaps. Okay, well think about it. I will, yeah. 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 If your childhood didn't exist at all, then what was the cause of you? Yeah. Think about these things. This is good. This is good. It's, it's confusing, but it's good to think about it, yeah? It gets us out of our complacency of thinking that there's a real me here. That is <laughs> so important. Okay? So, let's dedicate. May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path and all spiritual friends who practice it have long life. May I pacify completely all our inner hindrances, grant such inspiration, I pray. May the lives of the venerable spiritual mentors be stable and their virtuous actions spread in the ten directions. May the light of those sun's teachings dispel in the darkness of the beings in the three worlds always increase. Especially Ashra Basia be in the West. Flow.